0: From 1 Timothy chapter 4. We'll read the whole of that chapter. Um, it's page 1194 if you're using one of our pew Bibles. <clears throat> 1 Timothy 4. The Spirit clearly says that in later times some will abandon the faith and follow deceiving spirits and things taught by demons. Such teachings come through hypocritical liars whose consciences have been seared as with a hot iron. They forbid people to marry and order them to abstain from certain foods which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and who know the truth. For everything God created is good, And nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, because it is consecrated by the word of God and prayer. If you point these things out to the brothers and sisters, you will be a good minister of Christ Jesus, nourished on the truths of the faith and of the good teaching that you have followed. Have nothing to do with godless myths and old wives' tales. Rather, train yourself to be godly. For physical training is of some value... But godliness has value for all things, holding promise for both the present life and the life to come. This is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. That is why we labour and strive, because we have put our hope in the living God, who is the saviour of all people, and especially of those who believe. Command and teach these things. Don't let anyone look down on you because you are young. But set an example for the believers in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith and in purity. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of scripture, to preaching and to teaching. Do not neglect your gift, which was given you through prophecy when the body of elders laid their hands on you. Be diligent in these matters. Give yourself wholly to them so that everyone may see your progress. Watch your life and doctrine closely. Persevere in them, because if you do, you will save both yourself and your hearers.
1: Let's pray. Dear Lord and Heavenly Father, we uh, thank you uh, for your grace to us in Jesus. Uh, and Lord, we pray that as we reflect uh, this morning on uh, the spiritual disciplines of the Christian life, that uh, you would help us uh, to, to know how we can be disciplined in living for you, but also how your grace abounds for us as well. So Father, we ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, usually uh, in the week-to-week preaching that we do uh, here at the branch, we follow through a book of the Bible, so you know, we do a chapter at a time or, or whatever it is, something like that. Uh, But every year, sort of about this time, we spend roughly six weeks thinking about a topic. Um, uh, So today we're starting a seven-week series, as Jacob has said, on what's called the spiritual disciplines or disciplines of the Christian life. Uh, And spiritual disciplines is, is the term that people often use to describe the key parts of the Christian life that help us to stay and to persevere and to grow in our relationship with God. Uh, so over the coming weeks we'll be looking at prayer, uh, Bible reading, fellowship with other Christians, obedience, uh, serving and giving, uh, all as kind of important practices uh, of the Christian life. But today I want to just kind of step back from those, kind of those, those ideas and, uh, and look at kind of discipline in general and where that fits in the Christian life. Uh, So one book I found particularly helpful is the book Habits of Grace by David Mathis. Uh, I've written about it in the leaflet, and there should be a slide. There you go. There's the cover. Uh, So uh, it's not in the library yet. It will be. Uh, It's also available at... There's one copy at Kurong. So if you run out tomorrow morning, uh, like all the people from the branch will run there tomorrow morning. Um, uh, But you can also download it as a free PDF. How's that? Uh, From Desiring God. So... Uh, If you're too cheap to buy it, uh, (laughs) or if you like to read electronically, uh, then you can do that. Uh, And if your growth group is interested, if partway through the series you think, yeah, actually we want to dig into this a bit more, there's a study guide that goes with that as well. Uh, So you you might find that helpful. But particularly uh, in this sermon, I've I've, uh, been helped quite a lot by uh, David Mathis. So why do a series, though, on spiritual disciplines? Uh, What's the point? Well, I guess the main reason probably is that they're a crucial part of the Christian life, right? So it makes sense to think about them. They're the daily habits and practices that we take up in following Jesus. So we we ought to think about it. But I think uh, sort of beyond that, that many of us also struggle uh, with those spiritual disciplines. Uh, We know that we should pray, but we struggle to do it. Uh, either because we don 't know how to pray uh, or because we just struggle with the with the habit of of doing it, but another reason I think for spending time looking at disciplines of the Christian life is because discipline and commitment uh, it often seems to be lacking uh, in, in in modern Christianity. Sometimes you get the feeling that The word discipline is is a bad word, it's a dirty word, Uh, that the idea of doing something out of commitment or doing something out of discipline uh, is is sometimes considered by people to be unspiritual. Uh, The result of that, I think, is a lack of growth in people's lives. Uh, The result is sliding church attendance uh, in evangelical churches. Uh, The result is a troubling slide in theological and biblical understanding and in spiritual and moral maturity. So in the coming weeks then, we'll think about what some of those disciplines of the Christian life are and how we can grow in them uh, and do better at them. But this morning, as I said, what I want to do is to spend some time thinking about the idea of discipline in general in the Christian life. And the first thing to say is that discipline... Uh, Discipline is a biblical idea. So in that passage that we read a moment ago, Paul speaks about the importance of spiritual training and spiritual discipline. So he says in verse 7, Have nothing to do with godless myths and old wives' tales. Rather, train yourself to be godly. For physical training is of some value, but godliness has value for all things, holding promise for both the present life and the life to come. Uh, Paul says that godliness requires training and that spiritual training is similar in some ways to the physical training that people do for general fitness. Uh, So just like there's physical fitness and physical flabbiness, there's spiritual fitness and spiritual uh, flabbiness. Uh, I'm sure we all know the feeling of thinking that we're fit uh, and being kind of uh, unhappily surprised <laughs> by the true reality. Every time I go out and do the gardening, I think, oh, man. I come in, a, you know, and I'm shaking. I'm shaking from the physical exertion. I think, man, this is not good. Uh, but, but, you know, someone might invite you on a bushwalk and you think to yourself, how easy is this? You know, it's walking. You know, it's not like there's any skill required. Uh, I've got this covered. And then you go, you get halfway through the walk uh, and, you, you know, you're almost collapsing on the ground. Uh, you're, you're out of breath on the big climbs. And on the way down the hill, uh, you kind of your legs are wobbling underneath you. Uh, and you're trying not to trip over. Uh, well, just like we can be physically unfit, uh, some of us are spiritually unfit. In fact, all of us, unless we keep exercising our spiritual muscles, will end up spiritually unfit. We need to stay in shape. So you might run every day for 10 years, right? But if you take a month or two months off running, what happens when you go back out again? You know, you're blowing a gale, aren't you, when you're running down the street? (laughs) You know, you've got to stay in shape. We need to train and to keep training to stay physically fit and we need to train and to keep training to stay spiritually fit. But training is not just a fitness issue either, is it? Uh, Training is also about skill. Uh, So when I was first uh, learning to surf, uh, I could barely paddle out to the back, right? So, you you know, one of the the challenges of surfing is you've got to get out behind the waves that are breaking. And, And actually, if you've never done that before, that can be quite tricky. Uh, I thought the the, the reason I found that so difficult to paddle out the back was because I wasn't strong enough to do it, I wasn't fit enough. But actually, it turns out that one of the main problems in paddling out behind all the waves is that you've got to keep the board trimmed out when you're paddling. So you actually have to develop the skill of paddling and keeping the board trimmed out along the water. So even now, if I haven't been surfing for whatever it's been, four or five years or whatever, if I jumped in the water, I'd do a way better job of paddling out past the waves even though I'm horribly unfit, than I, I would do when I first started, right? There's a skill to learn. And once you learn the skill, you, you're working off a higher base, right? Uh, how many of us know the experience uh, of uh, taking up a new hobby uh, and we have dreams of what we'll accomplish? Uh, so we'll take up a new sport and we think to ourselves, that it's only a matter of months and I'm going to be the best player on the team, you know, I'm going to be kicking goals, uh, I'm going to be running down the wing, uh, you know. <laughs> wow, that guy's amazing. Uh, or, or you take up a new instrument and you think to yourself, it's good, just a few months and I'm going to be like shredding it like, like Jimi Hendrix uh, or something like that. Or, or you take up a new hobby, you take up painting and you think to yourself, I just, you know, I'm going to get my easel, I'm going to head out onto the mountainside and I'm going to do landscapes like Monet. You know, and and what happens? You you get the easel, you head out onto the mountainside, and it doesn't look anything like Monet, does it? You know, <laughs> and you've just spent thousands of dollars on all this painting equipment, and you're rubbish. You know, that's <laughs> true. I'm taking that laugh as a laugh of recognition, but. We give up, don't we? Because learning skills takes time and effort and commitment. We, we think, yeah, that's going to be easy. We start, we try, we fail, and we give up. Becoming proficient on an instrument or in a sport uh, or in a hobby takes years of practice. I don't know if you've heard that figure. 10,000 hours, they reckon. I've been playing the trombone now for, uh, it's, it's about 25 years, I think. That, that's scary. Uh, I had a bit of a break in the middle, okay? Uh, But how is this? I still can't play the note that I want to play every time infallibly. Playing the right note is a fairly fundamental concept in playing an instrument, right? (laughs) I've been playing for 25 years and I still can't always hit the right note first go. That's extraordinary, isn't it? But that's actually true of everything, isn't it? I mean, how many times they talk in tennis, don't they, about unforced errors? What does that mean? It's a skill error. They don't hit it where they... You know, Roger Federer's been playing tennis for how long? He's a, he's a champion of the world and he still can't get the ball always where he wants it to go. So why, if it takes so long to learn an instrument or master a sport, why, if it takes so long to do that, why would we think it takes any less time to grow or mature in our Christian lives? Why would we think it would take any less effort to grow or mature in our Christian lives? Talk to someone who's been a Christian for a long time and they'll probably tell you, if they're honest, that they still find it difficult to pray. They've been praying for 30 years, they still find it difficult to pray. Uh, or, or they might tell you that there are parts of the Bible that they still don't get, even though they've heard 50 sermons on it in their lifetime and they've studied it in growth group 200 times. Or talk to someone in a marriage. They've been married for 40 years and they'll probably tell you, I'm still learning today what it means to be Christ-like in my relationship. 40 years later. But we approach the Christian life, you see, like we approach a new sport or like a child learning an instrument. We do it in fits and spurts of excitement and then we give up because it's too hard. But the Christian life takes time and discipline. We try to pray, we we find it hard to pray and so we stop. And then we hear a sermon on prayer and we think, that's it, I've got to pray. And we try again and then it's too hard and so we stop. Or we open our Bibles to read something but we don't understand it the very first time we lay eyes on the sentence and we think, well this is beyond me. And so we close our Bibles and we never open it again. But since when has that been the case, that you read something for the first time and it makes sense? The Christian life takes discipline and training. Uh, You don't become proficient uh, and you don't become fit without training, without practice and without discipline. And it's important, I think, for us to realise that training is actually quite difficult and quite costly. Uh, So it takes a huge amount of time and commitment over a long period of time. So listen to what Paul says somewhere else about the severity of his spiritual training. He says this in 1 Corinthians 9. He says, Don't you know that in a race all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? Run in such a way as to get the prize. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last, but we do it to get a crown that will last forever. Therefore, so so that's the situation. Therefore, what does he do? Therefore, I do not run like someone running aimlessly... I do not fight like a boxer beating the air. No, I strike a blow to my body and make it my slave, so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize. We need to run in such a way so that we get the prize, the prize of salvation in Jesus Christ. That's an important prize to get, isn't it? And so we need to make sure that we run in such a way that we get the prize. Well, how do we run in such a way to get that prize? We go into strict training. Paul says he doesn't run like someone running aimlessly. I would love to see that. I would love to see someone running aimlessly. What does that even look like? Do they <laughs> they're going around the track at the Olympics and they just start going from side to side? We don't do. That. People don't do that, and we shouldn't do that uh, in the Christian life either. Either we need to go into strict training. We don't run aimlessly. We don't punch the air. We beat our body and make it our slave, so that we wouldn't miss the prize. Uh, It takes effort. Uh, You can't just hope to wake up one morning and expect to be disciplined or godly, just like you don't expect to wake up one morning and expect to run a marathon Uh, or to be able to play the guitar or to be able to paint. It takes planning. You need to plan to get better. You need to plan how you're going to grow. You need to plan what time you'll set aside and you need to stick to it. And it takes repetition. It takes doing the same things over and over again, just like you might do the same drills at footy every week. I mean, it's remarkable, isn't it? You just do the same thing over and over and over and over again. That's what you do in physical training, and actually that's really what you have to do in spiritual training too. The idea of spiritual discipline is deeply biblical. We're saved by grace, absolutely... But that doesn't mean that we don't need to expend any effort uh, in living for God and growing in knowing him. So that's the first thing. Uh, Spiritual discipline is biblical. The second thing is that spiritual discipline and spiritual training are more important than physical discipline and physical training. So Paul says in verse 8, For physical training is of some value, but godliness has value for all things, holding promise for both the present life and the life to come. Uh, so Paul is appealing to what we already know, what we take for granted. We know that physical training is valuable, right? That's a kind of a given. We know that that's true. Uh, we don't have to be convinced. We do lots of things uh, out, of, out of habit because we recognise that they're important. So we uh, brush our teeth uh, twice a day because the dentist tells us that that's good for our, for our health. Uh, we eat breakfast because, you know, everyone says breakfast is the most important meal of the day. Uh, or we go to the gym or, or go running a few times a week because we think that our health matters. Uh, we enrol our kids in sporting teams because we think that physical activity and learning skills is helpful and good for them. We do it because we think that the goal is important. Uh, we think that physical health or physical fitness is, is worth striving for. But Paul says, you know what? All that stuff is, is good, absolutely. Paul doesn't deny that. But spiritual training he says is even more valuable than that. Whatever physical training uh, we do, that all comes to an end when we lie in the grave. you know it's, I mean what good does it do uh, to, to be a tennis champion you know to train for a life to be a tennis champion when you when you're in a coffin? Now, that's not a skill that you acquire at that point. Uh, Paul says spiritual training, Outlast the grave. Uh, spiritual training, training yourself in knowing God in Christ and living that out has value not only now but also for eternity. So it's an absolute no-brainer, right? Spiritual training has, a va- has eternal value and physical training doesn't. And I suspect that that is not any great revelation for most of us. If, we're, if you're a Christian, then, then you probably go, yep, I, I absolutely am committed to that idea. But the problem is, I think, for most of us is that while we kind of agree with the idea that, that spiritual training is more valuable, that it outlasts the grave, although we agree with that idea, we our lives don't often actually bear that out. We don't live as though we believe it. So it's an interesting exercise, I think, to consider how much time and commitment we put into physical activity, uh, kind of just t- to give us a bit of a benchmark, right? So just start with the physical activity and think, yeah, how much time do we put into that? So, so this week I, um, I thought to myself, I thought back over some of the things I'd been involved in and what kind of time commitment they, they required. Uh, and you might like to do the same thing uh, as well. So, uh, so when I played or somewhat abortively played f- uh, football in Geelong, uh, we were expected to train twice a week for two hours, Okay? twice a week for two hours, and then on Saturday we were expected to turn up to the game two hours beforehand to start warming up, and goodness knows what else we were supposed to be doing as well. Uh, and then we were expected to stay around, for so we then play the game, and then stay around for the whole other game that was after that. So it was basically an entire Saturday. So two, two nights a week and an entire Saturday. Uh, that's, a, that's a pretty big commitment, I reckon. Uh, When I played ice hockey in Sydney, uh, our training sessions would start at 9, I can't remember, I think it was about 9.30 at night. It's hard to get ice time and so that was the only time we could get. So I'd drive out, it would take me about 40 minutes to over an hour sometimes to drive to the ice rink. We'd train for two hours, we'd finish at 11.30, I'd get home Well, I'm truly after 12 and probably in in bed by one o'clock. We do that once a week, and then we play games. And sometimes games we'd have to drive for as much as two hours to get there. Uh, over the last few years, I've, I've, uh, I've been playing trombone again. Uh, as you well know, I always mention it. But uh, I've tried to practice my trombone for 30 minutes to an hour most days, right, for the last five or six years. Uh, and then on top of that, I have two and a two-and-a-half-hour two band rehearsal once a week. Uh, I played in, recently in the Christian School Musical. Uh, I was practising for, you know, sometimes two, three, four hours at a stretch uh, and we had day-long rehearsals uh, and, and night-time rehearsals as well. Uh, that's pretty significant time commitment for those things, isn't it? But then the question becomes, what kind of commitment then do we put into spiritual training, Right? So, what kind of time commitment do people expect us to put into physical training, and then what kind of time commitment do we actually put into spiritual training, into training in godliness? Uh, five minutes a day, maybe uh, Sunday, Sundays most weeks. Imagine if uh, we, as a church, announced that from now on, instead of having youth group once a week, we were going to have it twice a week. Uh, twice a week, uh, for two hours. Um, After all, if the soccer team has to practice twice a week, then why not the youth group? If virtual training is more valuable. Uh, What if we announced that growth groups were now meeting twice a week and that church would go all day Sunday uh, and that you had to arrive before church two hours before so that you could warm up? (laughs) (laughs) You might need to at this time of year. Uh, and And then after church you had to stay around for the other congregation to watch their game. <laughs> well, like you'd think, wow, you're insane. But why, but, but that's, what, that's what people do with sport, right, isn't it? Like they're the, they're the community level expectations for what sport and hobbies look like. And yet Paul says spiritual training is more valuable. So something has to give, doesn't it? Like we either have to reassess the amount of time that we're putting into those things or we have to reassess the amount of time and commitment that we're putting into spiritual things. If spiritual things are more important. Now, I'm not necessarily suggesting that we do need to have growth group twice a week and, and that we need to get to church two hours before. But I think it's enlightening to make that comparison. And it's worth sitting down, I think, and adding up how much time you put into physical training of all kinds... Uh, versus how much time you put put into spiritual training. Now, you actually might be putting quite a lot of time into spiritual training. If if you're turning up to church once a week uh, for a couple of hours and you're going to a growth group and you're reading the Bible with your family every night after dinner or something like that, you know, you might do all the maths and actually you're doing quite a lot. But that's actually quite encouraging to know, isn't it? It's encouraging to know that actually you are putting time and commitment into growing and knowing God. Uh, Of course, on the other hand, you might add it up uh, and And a few minutes a week might not actually look that great on paper uh, and 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 you 'll know then that you have have work to do. But the point is it 's worth sitting down doing the calculation and working out how much time you 're putting into spiritual training versus physical training because because if physical training is valuable in ordinary life, then how much more beneficial is spiritual training, How much more beneficial is it in growing training and growing? Uh, in knowing and loving God through Jesus. So discipline is important. We need, we need to make every effort. Uh, discipline in our spiritual lives is more important than in any other area of our lives. But it's worth taking the, the, the time to ask the question too, what role does God play in all of this, right? Because I guess we could become really in, uh, unbalanced in how we think about uh, the spiritual discipline. It's helpful to look at some of the other passages in the Bible that speak about discipline in the Christian life because in many of them, there's an emphasis not only on our efforts, on what we do, but also there's an emphasis on what God is doing as well. So Paul says this in Colossians 1, To this end I strenuously contend with all the energy Christ so powerfully works in me. Who's working? Well, Paul and Christ. Uh, It's not that Paul's putting in 50%. And then uh, God kind of sees Paul's effort and then he he tops up the remaining 50%. Uh, Paul says it's Christ working through him. All that Paul does is the powerful work of Christ. uh, And all that Paul does is the result of Jesus' energy working out uh, in him, Jesus' life working out in him. Or Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 15, by the grace of God I am what I am, and his grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them. I worked harder than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. So Paul worked, but actually it wasn't really him working, it was God working in him. Or Philippians 2, therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. Uh, Paul says to the Philippians, you work out your salvation, but actually even as you do that, it's God working out his, your salvation in you. What's your responsibility? Your responsibility is to work out your salvation. What's God doing? He's working it out. He's working out his great plan and purpose, and that cannot be spoiled or held up by your inability. Uh, The idea that that idea is often labelled compatibilism, which is probably not a word that you want to use in public, but it can be helpful to understand. Uh, Compatibilism is an attempt to understand God's sovereignty, that God is in control, and our responsibility. Now, this is going to get a little bit tricky, Uh, so if you want to zone out for the next few minutes go right ahead, but if you can stick with it, you might find this helpful for the future. Uh, So compatibilism holds two truths together simultaneously. It holds together the idea that God is absolutely sovereign, but his sovereignty never functions in Scripture to reduce human responsibility. God's sovereign, but that never overrides our human responsibility. Second, human beings are responsible creatures, so we choose, we believe, we disobey uh, we respond and there's kind of significance, moral significance in our choices. But our human responsibility never functions in scripture to diminish God's sovereignty or to make God dependent on us or our actions. So God is sovereign, but, not, but his sovereignty never overrides our responsibility. And we are responsible, but our responsibility never makes God dependent on us. So God's sovereign, we're responsible, and the two don't cancel each other out. Uh, What what often happens, though, is that we emphasise one of those ideas and neglect the other. So if we emphasise God's sovereignty, the exclusion of our responsibility, then we end up with what's called determinism, another word you don't want to use in public. Uh, But that's the idea. Determinism is the idea that everything that we do has already been determined. Well, That makes sense, doesn't it? It's already been predetermined and we live like robots. There's a program, the great program that God has written in the sky, and we just live that out day after day. On the other hand, if we emphasise our responsibility to the exclusion of God's sovereignty, then we end up with what's called libertarianism. That's the idea that we have absolute power over our own actions and God is then effectively subject to us. So God might have great plans, but we can spoil them by our choices. But the biblical view, which uh, we're calling compatibilism, holds both God's sovereignty and our responsibility together. The Bible asserts that both are true, that God is sovereign and that we are responsible and we just have to hold them there together. So we saw that in those quotes, didn't we, from Paul with regard to his effort and God's work. I'm working, God's working through me. I worked harder than any of them, but it wasn't me, it was God working in me. Like the two are just true. They're just true at the same time. Uh, if you want to read more about that, Don Carson has written about that in his book, A Call to Spiritual Reformation in Chapter 9. Uh, but that's the tough bit, right? So if you're zoned out, if you fell asleep, tune back in. The key point is this. Here it is. We're responsible. We need to work. But ultimately, it's God's grace working which is the key. So it's not let go and let God. But it's us working and us relying at the same time on God's grace. So how does that work then in the, in the spiritual disciplines? How does that work out in our lives? Well, first of all, it means that we're completely dependent on God's grace. The spiritual disciplines are not a matter of technique, which if we get right, our lives will kind of just be this superabundant bliss Rather, as we work, we need to be on our knees seeking the grace of God. We need to be trusting God as we work. We need to be relying on God as we work. We need to be reaching out and taking hold of Christ as we work. We need to be asking God for the work of the Spirit, His Spirit, in our lives, working out the life of Jesus in our lives. So as we work and train uh We need to seek God, trust God, rely on God. But second of all, it means that we need to be attuned to the places where God has said that he will work. That is, God has revealed that there are particular places and rhythms in which his grace ordinarily flows. And they're often called the means of grace. Uh, they are the means that God ordinarily uses to grow us and to mature us and to strengthen us. So God can work however he wants, right? But he's chosen to regularly work in those ways. So David Mathis, that book, describes it like this. The grace of God is gloriously beyond our skill and technique. The means of grace are not about earning God's favour, twisting his arm or controlling his blessing, but readying ourselves for consistent saturation in the role of his tides. So he explains what he means by that later when he says, I can flip a switch, like a light switch, but I don't provide the electricity. I can turn on a faucet, that's a tap for those of us who live in Australia, but I don't make the water flow. There will be no light and no liquid refreshment without someone else providing it. And so it is for the Christian with the ongoing grace of God. His grace is essential for our spiritual lives, but we don't control the supply. We can't make the favour of God flow, but he has given us circuits to connect and pipes to open expectantly. There are paths along which he has promised his favour. He goes on, our God is lavish in his grace. He is free to liberally dispense his goodness without even the least bit of cooperation and preparation on our part. And often he does. God can do whatever he wants. But he also has his regular channels and we can routinely avail ourselves of these revealed paths of blessing or neglect them to our detriment. There's nothing remarkable about the places in which God has chosen to work. We'll be looking at some of them over the weeks to come, prayer, uh, reading the Bible, uh, fellowship with other Christians, uh, And and some others that flow out of those core ones as well, the disciplines of serving and giving and and obedience. Uh, There's nothing remarkable about those. Uh, Again, Mathis writes, such practices need not be fancy or highfalutin, as he says. They're the stuff of everyday basic Christianity, unimpressively mundane, but spectacularly potent by the Spirit. They are the stuff of everyday basic Christianity, unimpressively mundane, but spectacularly potent by the Spirit. We're responsible to work and train and put ourselves in the path of God's grace. But it's God in his grace who pours out the blessing and the growth into our lives through the Holy Spirit. So discipline's not a dirty word, it's a core part of the Christian life. But we're also utterly dependent on God's grace. But finally, uh, I just want to answer the question, what is the aim of God's grace uh, and our discipline? So unless we know what we're aiming for, we'll go in the wrong direction. And actually, discipline which is misdirected is ill discipline, isn't it? And it's no good, uh, it's no good training for javelin when the race that you have to run is a sprint. Uh, it's no good studying for a maths exam if the exam that you have to sit is for English. So what's the aim, then, of our spiritual disciplines? Well, in the immediate context of what Paul says in 1 Timothy, the motivation is so that we wouldn't abandon the gospel. Uh, That's certainly true. That's certainly one of the aims of spiritual discipline. Spiritual unfitness can lead to abandoning the gospel, giving up on God. But just avoiding apostasy is not the great aim of spiritual training. The great aim is actually something else. You might think, looking at 1 Timothy 4, that the great aim is godliness. But actually, godliness is not even the aim either. Godliness is actually the training. Godliness is the training program. Uh, That is, we're to practice uh, and to be disciplined in, in, in being godly. We're to be disciplined and purposeful with all of God's grace in pursuing godliness, a life lived for God and in Christ and through the Spirit. But the aim of training in godliness is not godliness itself. The aim of training in godliness is the promise of life, both now and in the future. So the NIV has, in verse 8, for physical training is of some value, but godliness has value for all things, holding promise for both the present life and the life to come. But it's probably better to translate it as something like this. Godliness has value for all things, holding the promise of life. Holding the promise of life both now and in the future. That is, training in godliness holds out the promise of real life, the real life that we were made for, the real life in Christ, a life which we enter now through Jesus, through knowing him, a life which we enjoy now in knowing him, and a life which we keep living into eternity. Listen to these words from John 17. Jesus says, Now this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Eternal life, real life, the life which matters, both now and in eternity, is knowing God and knowing Jesus Christ, whom he has sent. The ultimate aim of spiritual discipline and training is not your best life now, Uh, It's not even godliness alone. Rather, the ultimate aim of spiritual disciplines and the means of grace is to know Christ better. That's the aim. That's where we're heading. Paul says that in Philippians 3. He says that his great aim is to know Christ. And he's so determined to reach that end that he'll give up everything else. Listen to what he says. He says, "...but whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ." What's more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I lost all things. I consider them garbage, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. I want to know Christ, yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I've already obtained all this, or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Again, to quote David Mathis, When all is said and done, our hope is not to be a skilled Bible reader, practiced prayer, and faithful churchman, but to be the one who understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. Without the aim of Jesus in view, we'll never be disciplined because we'll head off after the wrong target, for one, but also because we lack the motivation. Why bother? Why bother to train in, in spiritual growth? It's so hard to be motivated. But when we see that the aim is not just discipline in itself, it's not even just godliness in and of itself, but when we see that the aim is knowing Christ and being found in him and knowing his love and, 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 and delighting in him and knowing his delight in us. And when we not only know those things, but when we begin to experience them and enjoy them, then we will be able to throw off every sin which entangles and to strengthen our weak knees and to run the race marked out for us. Our chief prayer needs to be the prayer not simply for greater discipline but for a deeper love of Christ because it will be that love which fuels our discipline and it will be that love which will be the reward of our discipline. And it will be that love experienced which will spur us on to keep going. Let's pray. Dear Lord and Heavenly Father, we want to acknowledge that uh, you have been so good to us. Uh, You sent Jesus to save us. Not just to save us, Lord, but to bring us into a relationship where we know you. And where we know your love. And Lord, we want to confess that uh, despite all your rich goodness to us, we, we're often distracted. Uh, we lack spiritual fitness. Uh, Lord, we're in the relationship, but we're not living that relationship well. And so Lord, we just want to bring that to you as we begin this series on spiritual disciplines. and We want to lay those things out before you and we want to ask that you forgive us for that and ask that you would help us to be more disciplined, to really train and work hard so that we might know you better and know the delight of of knowing you better. And Lord, we ask that over the next six weeks that you would help train us in those means of grace that you've provided And Lord, help us to help each other in that. not to look down on on others who uh, are not doing as well as, as us, but to get around each other and to encourage each other to use the means that you provided for our good so that together we might be built up in knowing and loving Jesus and being known and being loved by him. We ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen.